Can we stand? And as we stand, I invite you guys to greet your neighbors, say good morning. As Dave said last week, give them the holy head nod. And after that, we'll get into worship. As we turn to sing this morning, I'm reminded of um, Exodus 14. Um, just for some context here, we see the Israelites just being let out of Egypt and God turns and hardens Pharaoh's heart one last time. And he sends the Egyptian army after the Israelites. And the Israelites just at the same time are approaching the Red Sea and we find that they're caught between an army pursuing on one side, the impossibility of the Red Sea on the other. And we find that in the midst of that, their hearts were confused and they wondered even if they should have stayed in Egypt because they thought they'd surely die. But it was in this moment of impossibility that God did his best work and he made a way for the Israelites to get through. And not only that, but he also confirmed to their enemies that God was on their side. So this morning, as we turn to sing, I wanna remind us, all of us, that God has made a way for his people in the past. He continues to make a way for us in our present and he'll continue to make a way for us in our future. So we're gonna sing a new song this morning. It talks about turning graves into gardens, turning seas into highways. Let's sing this morning. There's nothing better than you. 
Welcome, fellowship. Y'all can go ahead and take a seat just for a few minutes here. Thank you for being here extra early today. I know it was not easy getting out of bed, but having an iPhone definitely helps with the whole changing time thing. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh. I'm on the community team here, specifically over college and young adults. And so, like the rest of the ministries here, COVID has, has thrown us for a few loops. But I wanna celebrate just a couple things that God has done this year in the college ministry. For one, every Sunday night, we've had about 400 to 500 U of A students right here in this room, which has honestly just been incredible. But my favorite thing that the Lord has done this year is what he's been doing in our small groups. Because of COVID, we haven't had access to dorms, uh, a lot of apartments, fraternities, sororities, and so we haven't been able to do small groups like we, like we wanted to. But it was such a blessing because we got to practice what fellowship does best. And we got to equip college students that have been in our ministry and release them. We got to send them out into their community. So into their dorms, into their apartments, uh, with the people that they live around, fraternities, sororities. And we saw the Lord reach people that I don't think we would have reached if it was just on the staff. And so that's just been such a huge blessing. And in fact, it's encouraged us for years to come to continue to practice this model of equipping and releasing even our college students. And so one of our goals and dreams and prayers that we have over these next couple years is we wanna see college students that are raised up, leaders in the college ministry that are raised up, and groups that are formed in every single fraternity, and sorority on U of A's campus. And so next time that y'all are maybe driving by campus or you see some college students, would you join us in, in praying that, that God would raise up specific students, guys and girls that would, would go on to share the gospel, start groups and disciple the people around them. But in other news, three weeks from today is Easter Sunday. It's already here. Uh, and so we're excited to get to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus with all of you. And so we're gonna have on Easter Sunday, we're gonna have three services right here in this room at 8, 9, 30, and 11. And then we're also gonna have some family services over in the West parking lot. And so that's where you can kind of bring a lawn chair, bring up some blankets, whatever you want, and we'll get to, to worship and celebrate uh, with, your, with your whole families. And then on Good Friday, a couple days before, we're gonna open up Fayette Kids Theater. If you don't have kids, it's just, you go down this hall and there's a, a Fayette Kids Theater. We're gonna open it on Good Friday from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we just wanna provide you a space to just take communion and reflect. What does the crucifixion of Jesus Christ mean for me? And so we're gonna provide that space from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Fayette Kids. Well, let's pray together and then continue to worship. Father, we just thank you that you love us. We thank you for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for doing what only you could do, that you're the only one that could save us. And out of your love, that's exactly what you did. So I pray as we sing this morning and as we respond to your word, that it wouldn't just be words that we've sung and listened to, a million times, but that you would use them, your spirit would use them to move in our lives. 
We love you and pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.
sing all glory and all
Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. God, as we stand here and worship to you this morning, I pray that we would let our hearts be stilled by your presence so we can recognize the work that you are doing because you're faithful, God. Father, get us out of the way this morning. Still our minds, still our hearts. Renew us like you've promised. Open our ears to hear the truth that you've brought us this morning in your word. Plant it deep so that it may grow into something, the thing that is beautiful that you've promised us. In Jesus' name. Well, you know, there's some things in life that we know we shouldn't do, but they're just so easy. And so sometimes we go ahead and do them. For instance, at the end of a long day at work and you're heading home, we know we shouldn't just drive through and grab fast food. It's not good for us, but it's so easy. And so sometimes we do. I don't know about y'all, but this is one that gets me. I know I shouldn't go on through that intersection. That light's been yellow for a while. (laughs) But it's just so easy, and so sometimes we do. And we know that we shouldn't assume the worst about people. But sometimes it's just so easy, and we do. I remember when I was a student at the U of A, I lived in Yoakum Hall. As many of you know, Yoakum is a 10-story dorm has two elevators. And so the elevators are really busy and they're crowded. And so we kind of had an unwritten rule in the dorm. If you live on the second or third floor, don't take the stairs. Or don't take the elevator, take the stairs. If you live on the second or third floor, don't take up valuable elevator space. You can walk up a flight of stairs or two. So one day, it was during a class, change time, it was super busy. Got on the elevator, elevator stops on the third floor. Guy steps off. So I say from in the elevator, they're called stairs. And just as the doors were closing, he turned around and took a puff off his asthma inhaler. The whole elevator groaned. One guy in the back goes, well, you're that guy now. (laughs) Oh, it gets worse. (laughs) Then the doors opened for me to get off. On four, (laughs) I'd gone up one more floor. I had assumed the worst. I had assumed he's lazy, he's inconsiderate, and I was wrong. What we're gonna see this morning in our text is the entire nation of Israel assumed the worst, and it almost has tragic consequences. We're gonna be in Joshua chapter 22. You can go ahead and turn there with me this morning if you've got your Bible. We're gonna continue our study in the historic book of Joshua. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, just like Josh, who was uh, with us a few minutes ago. I work on the community team, and I wanna say welcome. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us. If you're joining us online, we're glad to have you with us as well, and I especially wanna welcome those of you who maybe it's your first time, or, or maybe you've just been away for a while, and now you're back. We're glad you're here. You've caught us almost at the end of our study 
of the book of Joshua. We started this study back in January. After today, we have one more teaching in Joshua. And then, believe it or not, as Josh mentioned, it'll be Palm Sunday and then Easter. So if you're coming back or coming for the first time, I hope you'll stay. And I hope you'll continue to worship with us. I'd love to see you be part of what God's doing right here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Well, as we think about Joshua, like I said, it's a history book. It follows the first five books of the Bible we call the book of Moses, the books of Moses. And in those books, we saw God form the nation of Israel in Egypt and then redeem them out of slavery. And as the book of Joshua opened, they were right on the doorstep of the land that God had promised them. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Every member of the generation who was enslaved in Egypt has died because of their unbelief, except for Joshua and Caleb. And now, as Joshua, the book opens, Joshua's the leader of the nation. And so over the last few weeks, we saw how God led them into the promised land, how he parted the Jordan River for them to cross, how he took down the walls of Jericho and delivered that fortified city to them. And just last week, Clark walked us through what we call the allocation. As the tribes entered the land and God allotted certain areas of the promised land to them. So here we are, some 600 years after God had promised this land to Abraham, his promise has been fulfilled. And Israel's entering into a period of rest, rest from enslavement, rest from their wanderings, rest from the battles that they fought to enter the land. And now they're enjoying the land of milk and honey that God has provided for them. And so with that in mind, that's the situation as we begin Joshua chapter 22. Let's look together at verse one. It says, at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. So those are tribes of Israel. And he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. So these tribes he's talking to, these are the tribes that live on the east side of the Jordan River. They left their families. They left the lands that Moses had given them. And they went with the rest of Israel to fight the Canaanites in the land. And now that the battles are over, Joshua's sending them home. He commends them, not just for their obedience to him as their military commander, but for their obedience to Yahweh. Anytime we see Lord in all caps, that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. And so this passage is sort of like their honorable discharge. They've done their jobs, and now they can return to their land and to their families. Joshua goes on and he tells them they're better off for their obedience because they can take with them the spoils of war. He says, take your livestock, silver, gold, iron, and bronze. Take lots of clothing. And then he blesses them in verse 6. It says, Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. And then in verse 9, the people of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Now, before we press on into verse 10, I want us to just pause and feel this moment. 
the men of these two and a half tribes have fought side by side with the men of the other tribes for seven years. They've been obedient. They've been good soldiers. And they've been fighting for a land that they themselves won't occupy. And so it's easy to imagine them just getting a big send-off. Joshua blesses them. The other tribes cheer them. And they go home to hearth and family to begin their new lives in the land God promised them. Now, before we go on in our story, let's look back at our map. Like most guys, I love maps. I don't even really know why. I'm just looking at how things all fit together. So if you look at the northeast part of the map, that's the upper right for those of you who are directionally challenged. You see that green? That's the half-tribe of Manasseh. And just south of that or under that on the map, that's Gad. And then below that, them, that's Reuben. Okay, so these are the tribes we're talking about. And if we zoom our map in, you see that blue thing in the middle? That's not I-49. That's the Jordan River. And as you can see, those tribes have a physical barrier between them and the rest of the nation, that river. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't see why that's such a big deal. Like, what's, what's the problem with having this river between the east and the west? But I can understand how it's a big deal. Because I grew up not in Little Rock, but in North Little Rock. And that river makes all the difference. Two different city governments, two different school districts, two entirely different populations. We're nothing like people from Little Rock. And that river is an actual physical barrier. You know, there's an imaginary line between Fayetteville and Springdale. But the river, it's an actual barrier, and it's a game changer. Have you ever heard North Little Rock referred to as Dogtown? It's supposed to be an insult, but we natives embrace it. And where it comes from is, apparently, early in the 20th century, in Little Rock, they would round up all their stray dogs and dump them on the north side of the river. So yes, the river as a physical barrier changes things. So keep that in mind about the Jordan River as we look at verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that's the river, it's in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Now this is a little bit of a perplexing verse and it's designed to be. The writer of Joshua wants us to raise an eyebrow when we read this. These tribes from the other side of the river stop on their way home and build themselves a big old altar. And the reason that this verse should be perplexing is that the original readers of the book would have been familiar with the rules about altars. They're part of the law, regulations for the civic and religious life of Israel that God himself gave them through Moses. Their mind would have immediately gone to Deuteronomy chapter 12. In verse 13, it says, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. 
This is one of the ways God wanted Israel to be different from these pagan nations. See, the Canaanites, they put altars and shrines all over the place, willy-nilly, for all their false gods and idols. God said, you don't do that. You're gonna have one altar to the one God. Now, at the time of Joshua, it was in the tabernacle, a movable tent, but eventually it would be in Jerusalem. But even in Joshua's day, there definitely was not supposed to be an altar of imposing size constructed somewhere else. So verse 10 is this red flag, and the rest of the nation realizes it. Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, look, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Well, that escalated quickly. What in the world's going on here? The people of Israel, meaning the nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan. They heard about the altar and they're like, well, I guess we'll have to go to war against them. Now, first of all, I notice that they say on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And don't we all think like that? Don't we all have that in us a little bit? A little bit of that get off my lawn kind of mentality. If you think people don't care about which side of the line something happens on, mow about a foot into your neighbor's yard where your side yards meet. See how that goes for you. There's something in all of us that wants to say, this is the line, and everything on this side of it is mine. And the altar's on the side, they say, that belongs to the people of Israel. Now, first of all, to what nation do Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben belong? Israel. And secondly, who really owns all of this land? God does. He's made that abundantly clear through this whole of experience, this whole experience. But now all of a sudden they're like, hey, not on our side of the river. But what's really alarming is the conclusion that they reach. Look at the end of the passage. They heard about it and they said, we have to make war against them. Oh, how quickly. We has become us versus them. Remember how this chapter started? Man, Eastern tribes, good job. You've been obedient. You fought well. Blessings upon you. And now, just that quickly, based on something they heard, they assume the worst. Those who fought side by side with us now must be destroyed. They don't say, hey, we need to find out what's going on with them. Hey, we need to ask them what they're thinking on that. And maybe most importantly, what we don't see is them saying, let's seek the Lord and ask him how we should respond. Instead, they jump straight to, let's go to war and kill our fellow Israelites. And so they get this delegation together Look at verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him 10 chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. 
So they get a leader from each of these Western tribes, and they go over to confront them. And the leader of this little delegation is Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest. Now, we know a little bit about Phineas. He's appeared in the story before, and I just happen to have a picture of him. <laughs> okay, that's not really Phineas. But that's kind of the persona Phineas had. Just like if you're a bad guy in a spaghetti western, you do not want to see the pale rider roll into town. You don't want Clint Eastwood to throw that serape over his shoulder. Things are about to go bad for you. Phineas was like that, but with idol worshipers. See, back in Numbers 25, God had sent a plague on Israel. They had actually brought it upon themselves because they were worshiping an idol called Baal. And the way Phineas stopped the plague was he saw two people engaged in ritual idol worship and he stabbed them with his spear, both of them at once. So Phineas is not a guy you wanna mess around with, especially when it comes to right worship of Yahweh. And his opening comments to the Eastern tribes sound like those of a prosecuting attorney. Look at verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, this is Phineas talking, what is this breach of faith you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Phineas says, I'm speaking on behalf of the people of God. Why are you rebelling against God? Why have you broken the faith? And as he goes on, he brings up the incident at Peor, the place where God sent the plague. He knows that they know what happened there. He wants them to remember what happens to people who rebel against God. And then he goes on, he says, if your land is so unclean that you need this altar, come back with us, we'll give you some of our land. And then he brings up Achan. Remember Achan? Mickey came and talked to us about him just a few weeks ago. He was the guy whose disobedience brought judgment on the whole nation. And they all remember what happened to Achan. He and his whole family were stoned and buried under a pile of rocks. And then the eastern tribes respond. They respond by crying out to God. They say, Yahweh knows our motives. We didn't build this altar to offer him proper sacrifices. They built it for a different reason. Look at verse 22. They say, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your, your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Do you remember the memorial stones? Joshua said, 
Place these stones here where we cross the Jordan so your children will know that God was at work in this place. And just a few weeks ago, Mickey showed us a picture of an altar that Joshua built that archaeologists have found. Now the eastern tribes are saying, we're doing the same thing. That river, that physical boundary, just as Little Rock and Dogtown are separated for generations by that river, the eastern tribes say, we were afraid that in years to come, that river would cut our children off from you, and more importantly, from worshiping the Lord. And so this altar that they built, it's designed to be a symbolic tie to the real altar on the other side of the Jordan, the altar of Yahweh where appropriate sacrifices would be offered. And fortunately, for all involved, Phineas and the other leaders accept this explanation. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words, the people of Reuben and people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. Phineas, you won't need your spear today. A civil war has been averted because they got face to face and talked about the issue. And obviously, as it turned out, the motives of the Eastern tribes were not what the Western tribes thought. In fact, they were the opposite of what the Western tribes assumed. Rather than rebelling against God and breaking the faith, they were actually attempting to ensure that for generations they would worship the Lord. And as I studied this passage over the last few weeks, man, it suddenly seemed really relevant to our time today, as the Bible always does. Because it's a warning about the risks of assuming the worst in others. I think the main lesson of Joshua 22 is that assuming the worst about people can take us down the wrong path. In the case of Israel, it led them to the brink of civil war, all because they assumed the worst about the motives of their fellow Israelites. And I've wondered, as I've studied, as I've meditated on this chapter, how much does this happen to me personally? How often do I assume the worst about someone else and it takes me down the wrong path? How often does it happen to us as believers? How often does it happen to our nation? How often do we assume the worst about somebody else? One of the things that struck me in the passage is how quickly those who fought alongside them became the other. As soon as they crossed that river, they were the other. And I started to think, how often do I see someone else as the other? Someone to be feared, someone to be mistrusted, rather than seeing them as a brother and sister in Christ, or as a fellow Arkansan or even as a fellow American. How often do I think to myself, oh, I know why they're saying that. I know why they think that. It's because fill in the blank. It's because they're in that political party or that one. It's because they're in that line of work or, or they work for that company. 
oh, they think that because they go to that school. They're like that because whatever it is that makes us view them as the other. And when we do that, when we make them the other and assume the worst about them, several things can happen. First of all, we think we know that person's motive, but we don't. And when we assume we do, we actually put ourselves in the place of the Lord because only the Lord sees into the heart and ultimately knows our motives. And when we assume we know their motive and we assume the worst about them, we actually violate what Jesus called the second greatest commandment. We fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Were the Western tribes loving their Eastern neighbors when they assumed the worst about their motives? Were they loving them as their neighbors when they made plans to go to war against them? No, of course not. Now apply that to us. We aren't loving our neighbors when we say with our mouth or with our keyboard or even just in our own hearts. Of course you think that. Your motivation is bad. And that kind of thinking and speaking and typing, it leads us to violate the unity of the church. We undermine the visible unity of the church when we make brothers and sisters in Christ the other and we sit in judgment of them. When I assume the worst about a brother and sister in Christ because they're to the right or to the left of me politically, because of where they live, because they run in different circles than me, pick whatever you want to. When I sit in judgment over them, I violate the visible unity of the church and I undermine the gospel message, which is infinitely greater than whatever the little thing is that separates us. And just like Phineas and the leaders of the 10 tribes in the passage, we risk believing something that simply isn't true. When I assume somebody else's motives are evil, I can draw conclusions just like the Western tribes did that are not true. And as followers of Christ, we need to be discerning about what we believe and about what we repeat as truth. You may have heard me say this before. It's one of my favorite quotes. One writer said, 100% of people are deceived by deception. What that means is that all of us at some point believe something that turns out to not be true. And so we need to be cautious. We need to, before the Lord, be careful about jumping to an incorrect conclusion because we assume we know someone else's motive when we don't. And there's a subtle trap here. Assuming the worst about others can lead us to a false gospel of self-justification. When I project evil onto others, it makes me feel good about myself. They're the bad ones. We're the good ones. Their motives are bad. My motives are pure. I'm not the problem. They're the problem. And y'all, that is not the gospel. The gospel says the problem is my sin. And the solution is the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. And the humility that should come with realizing the truth of that gospel message should blow away that self-righteousness that causes us to assume the worst about others. And so what's the solution? Well, it's in the passage. First, we have to listen. Phineas didn't stab first and ask questions later, thank goodness. He listened to their explanation, and so should we. And when something seems off, especially if it's with a brother or sister in Christ, we should ask them, why do you believe the thing that you believe? Why are you saying the thing that you're saying? And we should approach that dialogue giving them the benefit of the doubt. We should look for commonality. We should try to see things from their point of view and understand that maybe their experience has been different than ours. And above all, we should extend grace to them just as God has extended grace to us. How often do you think to yourself, there but for the grace of God go I? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't stand for what's right. I'm not saying we shouldn't contend for the faith. But I am saying we should do it with humility and grace and love. Peter said, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. Because if assuming the worst can put us on the wrong path, grace and truth are what can put us on the right path, the path that leads toward unity, reconciliation. And we pray toward being a people that glorify God in everything we say and do. Hey, let's pray. Lord, thank you that in a story that is 3,000 years old, we have a truth that is relevant for us today. Jesus, you prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth, and then you said, your word is truth. And so, Lord, I pray the prayer of Jesus once again today. Sanctify us, set us apart, make us different by your truth. Lord, help us lean into the truth of your word. And then, Lord, help us face outward with grace and with humility to bring honor and glory to you. Lord, I pray that you would be at the center, you would be the anchor of everything we believe and everything we say in
Yeah.